family, uh, we are going to be looking at chapter one of Acts today. And we're going to be looking at verses one through eight. And uh, we had just come off our discipleship retreat and we had a great time kicking it. And the theme of that retreat was evangelism. And we've also spent some time caring for and connecting with our missionaries. Uh, And so we wanted to make this Sunday our missions Sunday because it seems to just continue with the theme out of evangelism is missions. And we also had one of our elders go spend time with our missionaries overseas. Uh, So we'll be talking about that in a little bit. Uh, But I want you to read with me uh, Acts chapter one. We're going to go through verses one through eight real quick. Verse one, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed By his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. To the end of the earth. Amen. Lord, we want your word to be illuminated, and the Spirit does that. Help us to understand what you desire to say to us. Move me out the way that your name may be proclaimed and people drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you had a a friend like this. I had one homie, and I never understood the way he thought, but it went a little bit like this. We both like toys. I don't know if your toy was Yu-Gi-Oh!, Pokemon, G.I. Joe, She-Ra, Silverhawks. Pick your toy. But you had a toy that you liked and you had a homie that liked the toy. So the new toys coming out, y'all getting excited. It's about to drop. We know this Friday, the new toys coming out. Great. All right. Now it has the, all the new accessories on the toy, has the, the robo grip or the extra brushes or all the whole nine. Y'all both get excited about the toy. He gets the toy. She gets the toy. You go to her house, get ready to play with it. And they say, wait a minute, play with it. This is a collectible. <laughs> you, you don't play with this toy. You simply look at the toy in the package and you observe it. You just enjoy the presence of the toy, but use it for the intended purpose. No. Family, sometimes as we are going to look at God's word today, sometimes we can see the Holy Spirit kind of like a collectible. The Holy Spirit is one that gives us power to be a witness. But sometimes it, it is simply something that we hold inside 
and don't fully use the purpose by which it was given to us. In the, in the first chapter of Acts, and Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, so he's picking up where Luke left off uh, at the end of Luke. We see in the beginning of uh, Acts, he's kind of doing you a recap for Luke so that you understand what just took place. He's saying, hey, Jesus has just died. He rose. All right. Now, in, in him rising, he conquered death. That has taken place. But now he wants to give a testament to the resurrection. So he says, hey, after he died, conquered death, he shows himself and reveals himself to the disciples. So there's many proofs. So there's without question whether this Jesus is who he said he was. There have been many prophets before, many people before that said, I'm the savior. But they died and remained dead. Jesus then shows himself to validate everything I've said is true. I am living. But then he also says, hey, I'm going to give you all some orders to the disciples. He says, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem because the father has a promise. And the promise is found uh, in verse five. And it's that John baptized with water, but the father would baptize with what? The The Holy Spirit. Now, maybe maybe you're like my little brother or maybe you're like me. Sometimes I use things in the wrong way. Not the way they were intended. Like my little brother, he thought that my Nintendo was the syrup holder. So he poured syrup in my Nintendo. I'm still getting over that. Still getting over that. But, but, but the disciples here are saying, whoa, the spirit is coming. Great. When is this restoration going to happen? When is this, this, this new power that we're going to have? When are we going to be able to run things? And Jesus, and, and, and I, don't wanna, I don't want us to like see the disciples as being so selfish, so arrogant. Because if you look at Joel chapter 2, it, 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 it reminds us that this hope of the Spirit coming had been in place for some time. But people thought when the Spirit was put upon humans, that that would mean that the, that the people of Israel would reign and triumph and, and, and be over all. They would rule over all. They'd be back to kind of how David ruled all kingdoms. And so you'll see in Joel chapter 2, it says uh, in verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall see dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, uh, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So they were thinking when the spirit finally gets here, we're going to run things. The restoration of of our reign is finally going to happen. We're going to run things. But what, what might you think about doing if I told you today that an unimaginable power is going to be unleashed to you? 
what, what would you what would you fantasize about being able to do if I said a power that you can't imagine is going to be given to you? Would your first thing be about, hey, that's great. I'm, I'm so excited to tell others about it. Probably not. So they were missing it. They were missing it. But Jesus redirects them in verse seven. He says, it is not for you to know the times or season that the father has fixed by his own authority. You focused on the wrong thing, disciples. I want to I want to refocus you. And he says in verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This power, power, it's, it's a word that's called dynamis in the Greek. It, it is the same word that's used of Jesus's miracles. So when you, when you and I love seeing Jesus perform miracles, that same word is used of what's going to be given to the disciples, what the Father has promised that they will receive, a power that we can't fully, fully imagine. This points to the folks say that this verse, verse eight, is actually the the whole aim of the book of Acts. And you can see the book of Acts unfolding based on this verse as you look through the different chapters of the book. Now, this is not a comprehensive understanding of the Holy Spirit. How John speaks of the Holy Spirit is very different than we're talking about the Holy Spirit here. But the power that would be given unto the disciples and dare I say the power that would be given to all mankind is one for an intended purpose of seeing others be able to experience and hear the good news. So the the beauty of the good news and actually the, the beauty of all of God's word is that he meets us where we are. And one of the reasons why I love the Bible is it gives us historical facts for the the intellectual mind. It gives us uh, stories for the intellectual that actually likes to enter into understanding and kind of see the Bible come off the pages. It gives us poetry for those that are smooth with our tongues or our minds, love and imagery. So the Bible gives us a variety of ways to communicate its truths. But 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 one of the ways that I love most and have seen us all impacted as we look at the Old Testament is through hearing stories of people that God uses. So on Missionary Sunday, we want to we want to celebrate that God has used some amazing missionaries. Of course, those in the Bible like Paul. Of course, we have the story of Stephen. Um, but then we have more modern day. We have some folks like Adoniram Judson. We have our sister uh, Gladys Aylward. We have Mary Slesser. We have Jim Elliott. But I want to tell you a story today about a missionary that you might not be as familiar with. And I pray as you hear the story of this missionary, it would lead you to be encouraged by the power of the spirit working in people and get, get us continue to be excited about that spirit continuing its work today. Amen. Amen. So Samuel Morris, he was a man uh, whose story points us to God. Now, his birth name was Prince Kabu. He was from the uh, he was the son of a chief and born in 1873. 
Uh, He was part of the crew tribe, and that tribe lived in the interior of Liberia. Uh, The crew tribe mostly hunted, they mostly fished, but they lived next to a tribe called the Gribo. Now, the Gribo uh, was a tribe that was trying to constantly take over. And one day, the Gribo said, we would love to have a truce with you. We know we've been fighting for some time, but let us have a truce. And they invited the crew tribe and warriors in for a celebration. So they gave them a lot of food, got them full, gave them a little something to drink. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And as the party almost ended, they locked the doors and slaughtered most of the warriors from the crew tribe. A few made it back. And those few that made it back could not stand up against the Gribos. And so from that time on, Prince Cabo would pray and he would pray to the gods and he would say, gods, I need you to intervene because we are weak and we cannot even defend ourselves And he and his friend built an altar to the gods. Shortly thereafter, the Gribos came, ravaged their entire village and killed his friend. And from that point on, he started a journey of saying, if these gods even exist, why would I choose to worship them? But next, right after they ravaged his village, they took him hostage. You see, uh, the way to get treasure and to get resources from the other tribe was to steal the prince. And so they would take the prince. The Gribos took Kabu, held him captive, took a bunch of the villagers, took them with him and said to the chief, we will beat your son once a week. And each time we do so, we're going to send a villager back from your camp to tell you how bad it was. And once you bring a payment that is big enough to get your son back, we will then release your son. But every week, the payment wasn't good enough. And every week, a more horrific beating took place. It got to the point where his father stopped coming. His father didn't have any more treasure. He didn't have any more goods. He didn't have any more resources. So he stopped coming. And the Gribos set together to have a big celebration that they were going to kill Cabo, Prince Cabo. And so with all of the crew people that have been captured there, with all of the Gribo there, they are setting up to punish him one last time. And this miraculous light comes forth, a light that comes forth that blinds everyone. And it says, Prince Cabo, run, run. His straps that have held him in the midst of being beaten where he couldn't move aspects of his limbs are somehow released. And he runs and he runs and he runs and he follows the river and he follows the river for four days. Now, his his tribe and the Grigbo tribe are both in Liberia. And if you guys aren't familiar with Liberia, Liberia is the country that once slavery ended was a welcoming place to previous slaves. And so if you once you were a free slave, you could go back to Liberia and start a new life. And so Prince Cabo follows the river and he finds this plantation and he sees these black people working. 
and they don't look like Grebo, and he's tired of eating slugs and plants and says, I, I've got to go for it. I've got to interact with humanity. He goes up, and as he sees these black people picking these brown seeds, he actually bumps into a person that's from his village. He bumps into a guy named Nathan Strong. And Nathan lets him know that this plantation is a coffee plantation that's run by a black man and that you are safe here. So he teaches him how to farm and pull coffee beans. And while he's teaching him, he prays. And, and Prince Cabo is saying, who are you talking to? I'm talking to God. He asked him, if, 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 if there's a God, tell me which one. And he says, no, this is not a God of many. This is God, my father. He says, if you are talking to this God, I want you to teach me how you talk to your father. Teach me how to do this. So as they continue to, to, to pull these coffee beans, Nathan began sharing the gospel with Prince Cabo. And Nathan says, I know you knew me as Locust, that was his name when he was in the crew village, but now my name is Nathan. Because once I came to know Christ and became a Christian, my name was changed. Prince Cabo says, well, well, please tell me who, what it means to be a Christian. And what, he, what, what Nathan did was introduce him to a missionary who had just arrived. Her name was Miss Noel. Now, Miss Noel was a poor woman in America who had always desired to be a missionary. She got connected with a famous banker named Samuel Morris. And Samuel Morris paid for her to attend Taylor University, and then he paid for her to be able to go onto the missions field. So she begins to share the gospel with Prince Cabo. And she begins to talk not only with him, but with a whole group. And she told the story of Saul and the persecution that believers received. And Prince Gabo, his ears perked because he knew what it meant to be taken captive. She began to talk about Paul's travel on a road and experiencing a bright light overwhelming him and then falling to the ground and hearing the voice of Jesus, which changed Paul from ever, changed him from an accuser to a champion of the faith, from dead to alive in Christ. And Prince Cabo said, I know that light. I've heard that voice. What Jesus did for Saul, he did for me. His eyes filled with tears as he understood the concept of Jesus being taken as a pawn to save the life for sinners. He was moved by Miss Knowles telling of how the father gave up his son as a pawn as a pawn and how the blood of Jesus was the payment to redeem all people in the world. He became a believer in 1887. But he began to wrestle with how do I serve this one holy and living God? So while working hard on the coffee plantation, he spent a lot of time in prayer. He was constantly seeking the missionary, saying, can you teach me more about this God? Can you teach me more about this God? Can you teach me more about this God? Miss Knowles said, I have taught you all that I can teach you. But there is something that I want to do. I want to change your name because the fruit of who you are now models that of Christ. 
And when a person becomes a believer, we change their name from an African name to an American name. So she gave him the name of the banker that allowed her to be able to be a missionary, Samuel Morris. Now to the people in the room, I know that frustrates you a little bit. Black, white, Asian, whoever you are, you might be a little frustrated that his name was changed. This is a human whose name was given in America. I get it. But don't let that distract you from hearing the bigger picture of how God uses Sam Morris in the life of America and of Africa. Amen. So stay focused with me. Don't tune out because you got mad. All right. So they say we can teach you no more. She says, well, he asked, who taught you? And they say Stephen Merritt. Stephen Merritt is a man that commissions missionaries from New York. And there's an aspect of teaching, of prayer, of understanding God's word that I can give you. But there's an aspect of the Holy Spirit that he, I I can't explain it, but when missionaries come fearful, worried, anxious, when they have an experience with this man, they are ready to go to the mission field courageous. And so Stephen Merritt is the one who I would send you to. He says, where is Stephen Merritt? They said, New York. He puts on his coat and starts walking. So where are you going? I'm going to New York. Guys, this is 1888, 1887. You don't just jump on a plane. He begins walking for the water and says, Lord, for the next day and a half, Lord, would you allow a ship to be there that's going to America? Would you allow a ship to be there that's going to America? Would you allow a ship to be? And when he pulls up, there's a ship there going to America. And so he begins praying, Lord, would you allow the captain to receive me? 1887. When we think of ships taking black people places in that era, you don't want to get on a ship. Come on in. Y'all are welcome. Come on in and have a seat. We're happy to have y'all. But he says, Lord, would you would you use me? Would you allow there to be a ship that takes me to America? Would you give me favor with the captain? The captain looks at him and says, are you crazy? Get away from me. The next night, captain comes back and says, I'll take you. Two of his shipmates have jumped ship went into the land, and they're not coming back. So he's short help. Now he assumed, because this black man is at the port, he knows a lot about the water. He didn't know that Prince Cabo or Samuel Morris was an inland, was from the inland. So if, if I could give you the full story, you'd be in awe. But all I can say is this. The only two things that people had in common on the ship was that they loved money and they loved alcohol. This ship was a trader ship, so it stopped at ports all along, all along, all around the world. And they would barter and trade and pick up people to work on the ship. There was even language issues where certain members couldn't understand each other. Everyone on the ship hated one another, and they all unanimously hated black people. He was the only black on the ship. They all testified upon hearing upon his death later that everyone on the ship went from hating one another to praising God and singing hymns when they arrived in New York. Praising God and singing hymns. 
So they, they arrived in New York. Ah, I know I didn't got off my notes. They, they, he stepped on the boat in spring, summer of 1891 and arrived in New York, September of, of, uh, of 1891. Stepping off the boat, he needed another miracle. All he knows is the man's name is Stephen Merritt. How do I find Stephen Merritt in all of New York? He walks up to a homeless man and says, sir, can you tell me how to find Stephen Merritt? The homeless man says, yes, I can. You see, Stephen Merritt ran uh, the, the, the um, oh my goodness, what is the name of the, we have one in Detroit. No. Look at my notes. It's like a shelter. Yeah, mission agency. The, um, Rescue mission. Stephen Merritt ran the rescue mission, caring for the homeless, caring for the down and out, caring for all, but also extending to the down and out. And this homeless man said, I can take you. So he takes him there. Stephen Merritt meets Samuel Morris the first night. He says, look, I want to care for you, but I have a meeting that I have to attend. Samuel Morris you can stay here. Uh, I want you to go to the rescue mission and they'll give you something to eat there. They'll give you a, a good word in the Lord and you'll have a place to stay. Stephen Merritt returns from his meeting into the night, comes in to the rescue mission and he finds Samuel Morris sitting at the platform praying and 16 of the homeless men weeping at the altar, praying for repentance. This was the start of a relationship between Stephen Merritt and Samuel Morris, where Samuel Morris would spend time in prayer, and Stephen Merritt said as many as he had commissioned, as many as had come and commissioned him, Bishops that would come and stay at his home, would come and touch him, pray over him. He had never experienced the impact of the Holy Spirit like he had when he had Samuel Morris in his presence and pouring into his life. And so prior to Samuel Morris, Stephen Merritt was caring for tens of hundreds. After, Steve, after Samuel Morris leaves and goes on, Stephen Morris's, excuse me, Stephen Merritt's ministries boomed to thousands, thousands. Now, we think thousands because we know of mega churches either here off 75 or California. You weren't having thousands of revivals like this in 1890. It, it, the churches were, were, it wasn't happening like that. And so Merritt, he said this, he said, whether Samuel Morris paused and preached, sharing his testimony or preaching from John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him or whether Samuel just prayed and invited you to join him as he prayed to his father. Either way, your life was changed. And, and Stephen Merritt knew that there was only so much that he could teach Samuel Morris, that he wanted Samuel Morris to be able to get a full understanding of the wholeness of the gospel and that he could do that at Taylor University. 
So he, along with other friends, created the Samuel Morris Missionary Society to create and draw money to pay for Samuel Morris to be able to go to Taylor University. Samuel Morris arrived on the campus of Taylor University in December of 1891. And from the day he arrived, people from far and wide began coming to hear this man preach, to be in his presence as he prayed, and to pray for him. There is a number of documents from newspapers that reported about this black boy that was leading revivals in Fort Wayne. I have family from Fort Wayne. It's still really white. You know what I'm saying? Like this black boy. His name became a household name. He would spend hours upon hours of time and prayer, and he was known for his hunger to talk with the Lord and his hunger to understand God's word. Both blacks and whites said that he was one that somehow the favor that God had upon him rose him above the racial issues that people. And and this is each person testifies to that from the ship captain to those that were in New York to those at Taylor University, to Fort Wayne residents who didn't go to Taylor, that for some reason, blacks and whites were able to do life together to a degree, still 1891, to a degree because of God's favor upon Samuel Morris. From being a Grebo captive, to learning the gospel while picking coffee, to sharing the gospel while traveling on a ship to America, to preaching to hundreds and learning from Stephen Merritt about the Holy Spirit, to praying with and for thousands to repent while he was at Taylor and in the Fort Wayne community. All of this was birthed out of Samuel's desire to someday return to his crew village and share the gospel with his own people. But sadly, Samuel became ill with pneumonia. And though he had prayed for healing and received it in the past, this time It did not pass. He shared with his friends and fellow students that the Lord had revealed to him that it was time for him to come home. And when they asked, but what about your mission to your people, the crew? He responded, it is not my work, but it is his. My job is finished. He will send others that are better than I to do the work in Africa. Samuel's death sparked a flame for missions in the Taylor University student body and in the Fort Wayne community. Many said, and prior to that, I think it was said that Taylor had only sent two people out for missions and one went to Africa. But many said that they felt the call to overseas missions in Africa after he passed. When he was buried, he was buried in the the black section of the cemetery uh, on May 12th. 1893. Uh, One year after his death, Taylor University dedicated a dormitory to his life uh, and the impact that he had on the campus and the community. This is 1894. A white institution is naming a building after a black man. 
While the building has changed over the years, Samuel Morris Hall still remains today. Taylor University began a rich history of sending many missionaries to Africa. Um, Now, Jake, would you mind just, just, I want to give you guys some resources because if you just do a Google search on Samuel Morris Cabo, K-A-B-O-O, you'll you'll find like a bunch of stuff. Uh, I was going to do that one next. I didn't have like a Google picture up there with like a bunch of uh, things. Yeah. So um, like there are books written about him. This is the book I read. Great book. Uh, There are some other um, stories. But go back uh, one, Jake. There's also no no, to the um, Google one. There's also um, here a torch lighter series. There's a cartoon that that uh, shares about missionaries lives and his life is one in the series. So, uh, fam, it's been documented by a variety of people. uh, This man's life, the impact he had on others and how God used him in a great way. Uh, Now you can go to those monuments. They, They built some statues at Taylor University, uh, the first, that's called the moment of truth, where he uh, experienced that bright light. Uh, the next one is called heeding the call, where he's uh, running towards the call he feels the Lord has on his life. And the last one is sharing the word. Uh, yeah, just his steadfast resolve to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, In 1928, they moved his grave site from just the the black area of the cemetery to actually uh, a connecting aspect, uh, a walkthrough where that connects the black area to the white area uh, to honor what he meant to the community of Fort Wayne. And all of uh, the the school and people gave towards a monument and uh, the monument Wrote, they wrote this on the tombstone. It says, uh, Samuel Morris, 1873 to 1893, Prince Cabo, native of West Africa, famous Christian mystic, apostle of simple faith, exponent of spiritual field life, student at Taylor University, 1892 to 1893, Fort Wayne, now located up in uh, at Upland, Indiana, the story of his life, a vital contribution to the development of Taylor University. The erection of this memorial was sponsored by the eight, 1928 class Taylor University funds and were contributed by Fort Wayne residents in 1928. Family, uh, Jake, if you can go back to that, that verse eight that we had. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The same power that was in the lives of the disciples, the same power that was in Miss Noel, the missionary, the same power that was in Nathan Strong, who shared the gospel in the coffee plants, the same power that was in Stephen Merritt that equipped my brother to understand the Holy Spirit. The same power that was in Prince Cabo is in us. I don't necessarily expect a, an Acts chapter two experience. I don't know what the fruit of that that spirit being within us all will be. What I do know is that we've been empowered to share the gospel, first starting with our home, but then going out to the nations. And I'm excited to see how he's going to continue to use us. 
Amen. Amen.